0: A big welcome to our live audience for coming to this episode of Digital Health Investor Talk. I'm your host and today's speaker, Stephen Wardell. I'm the managing partner of Wardell Advisors, a digital health advisory firm and the author of The Future of Digital Health. Wardell Advisors is helping digital health companies address issues around growth, fundraising and strategic alternatives. This show is being recorded as a podcast. This is not investment advice and we are not investment advisors. Today's topic is selling to the big budgets, forecasting the spendiness of major software buyers in healthcare. First off, here's the format of this investor talk. I'll talk for about 20 minutes about the news and other topics, and then I'll shift to today's topic for another 20 minutes, and then I'll open it up for questions and call-ins from the audience. In order for you to do more than just watch, you need to register for an account on call-in, and it's not too late to do it right now. To register, you can access call-in at callin.com or through the call-in social podcasting app in your app store. The call-in platform works similarly to clubhouse rooms and Twitter spaces for a modern social audio experience. Once you've registered, you can use the text chat or press the website's call-in button to join the discussion. So now I'll move on to our first topic, which is the macro outlook, Um, because that is determining so much about today's environment where uh, young digital health companies are often finding it a challenge to raise money from investors, and that challenge is, is strongly determined by the macro outlook. So we continue to see a weak private investment environment in digital health, The NASDAQ has been going largely sideways for the last three months with a lot of uncertainty about whether the Fed will continue to raise rates to fight inflation, which would be bad for for NASDAQ values. This uncertainty makes it hard to value and price private companies like digital health companies. Today, the Bureau of Labor Statistics announced that the CPI was up 0.1% month on month as compared to the expected 0.2%, so it came in lower. Um, Markets were up half a percent upon announcement, as it was seen that this was showing the success of the recent Fed rate hikes in taming inflation. Since then, the market today has been down a little bit uh, on recession fears. The next FOMC meeting is May 2nd to 3rd, and uh, I the, the base case we're looking at here is that they could raise rates 25 basis points like they did in March. Um, what we're looking for, though, is any sign of the Fed saying that uh, they don't need to raise rates anymore or they've stopped raising rates. That would bring an end to this uncertainty in valuations that we're seeing in financial markets uh, that is making it difficult for private investors to price deals in digital health. So that would be a catalyst if we saw the Fed give any sign of saying that it's come to an end to the current period of raising rates. The IPO window for digital health remains closed. There's a potential opening in the IPO window, however, that wasn't there just recently. Two large tech companies, Instacart and ARM, have said they plan to go public, but there's no date set for that. Um, if Instacart and ARM did go public, uh, and if that, if the IPOs were viewed as a success if two large tech companies had successful IPOs. Their valuation lifted after pricing upon flotation in the market and was sustained at a higher uh, rate in the market. Then I think that IPO investors, which are often mutual funds, would be primed to take on a lot more IPOs. There's a lot of demand for IPOs, provided there can be a successful IPO market. Um, And then I think you'll see more digital health companies and the digital health unicorns rush into that market and try to go public themselves. So that, that's another catalyst is will Instacart and ARM have successful IPOs. Um, we could be entering a recession. Uh, Jason Calacanis, uh, an investor, has said publicly he thinks we're entering a Fed cost recession right now. Um, Fidelity and other economists out there are saying that we are at the end of an expansionary period, but we haven't entered a recession yet. I think that's the conventional wisdom. So a recession is both good and bad. Um, A recession is bad for digital health, young technology companies, because it means that software buyers usually feel poorer, so they buy less product. Um, But it can be good because the Fed's very worried about inflation and raising rates because of inflation, and a recession, would lead to a reduction of consumer demand and a reduction of inflation, leading the Fed to feel no longer needs to raise rates anymore. So in summary, if the the Fed in May raises rates by some expected amount, like 25 basis points, and then says it's stopping raising rates, uh, that could be the catalyst we need to see venture investors get off the bleachers and jump back in the pool with digital health CEOs where they belong and start and start putting their the, the money they've raised to work. Uh, and if Instacart and ARM IPOs are successful, then we could see some digital health unicorns follow them with their own IPOs and have a new digital health uh, IPO season. So next I'll move on to valuation levels. So the most recent SaaS capital index, which was published at the end of March, um, uh, it, uh, is showing median valuation levels for SaaS companies of 7.1 times forward revenue. This is as compared to the long-term median of SaaS companies at eight times. Um, And also the 7.1 for last month held relatively steady as compared to February's valuation level of 7.2. So roughly the same. Um, At the same time, high growth SaaS is trading at about eight to 12 times. And this compares, unfavorably to the hot, to the unusual highs of 2021, when we saw median SAS trading at 16 times forward revenue instead of seven or eight, and high growth SAS trading at 30 to 35 times forward revenue instead of eight to 12. Um, so, and the valuation environment is still risk off, meaning that, um, that uh, uh, companies with, with, that are earnings negative are, are relatively disfavored uh, in this environment. Um, uh, and uh, uh, and uh, so uh, and uh, companies that are, are safer bets uh, are getting more attention from investors. So next, I'll move on to news for the week. So in news for the week, we, we covered this a little bit last week, uh, but uh, Pair declared bankruptcy. Um, and uh, previously, Pair had you know had announced that it was in trouble and that it did not expect to do a fourth quarter earnings call for the year, uh, and that it was looking for a buyer. Um, but relatively shortly after that announcement, PEAR technically declared bankruptcy. So this is, this is unfortunately, this is a, gonna be a, a negative signal to the market about digital therapeutics companies. And Pair itself, it stood for a particular kind of commercialization strategy, which was uh, seeking equivalence with molecular therapeutics. So it was seeking to follow the same regulatory pathway as as um, molecular therapeutics it was seeking um, to uh charge the same pricing and have the same kind of reimbursement uh, as regular molecular therapeutics Um, and it pair always had difficulties with that it had difficulties winning reimbursement at the prices that it wanted it had difficulties getting doctors to prescribe it had difficulties getting users to use its products which are harder to use than the pill um, few things are as easy or understandable as utilization of a pill from a prescriber and a patient perspective and pairs software-based products were uh, harder to get uh, prescribers and users um, to use and keep using um, so uh, and i think that this is causing a lot of uh, kind of head scratching and reevaluation among companies that are pursuing the same uh, sort of molecular equivalence strategy in digital therapeutics. We'll see, but but PEAR's bankruptcy is definitely a, uh, you know, uh, a, a troubling, you know, milestone. Um, we're also seeing Achille and Better, which are the other two public digital therapeutics companies, trading at very low levels. Um, so in other news, um, investor Chamath uh, Palahapatia uh, announced last week that he... Believes that the U.S. LP market is dead. So this is very interesting because we've heard that uh, there have been a lot of trouble with with LPs. So LPs fee- were heavily invested in in growth areas before the before the um, the downturn of the last six months, uh, and uh, as a result, um, were were hurt as valuations pulled in fifty percent or more, um, and LPs. Uh, uh uh are often have ratios they have to meet such as that, that a certain amount in public markets a certain amount in private markets and their ratios are all messed up because of valuations have pulled in differentially across the in, in different areas and so uh, as a result we've been hearing that venture funds have been going to lps uh to make capital calls which will raise new funds uh and we've been hearing mixed results so we've definitely been hearing that a lot of lps Um, are sort of closing the door to investing in new venture funds. Uh, And here's the first person I've seen who's sort of announcing that the LP market is dead. And so uh, Chamath went on to say that he is seeing venture funds looking to Saudi Arabia and the Persian Gulf for active LPs to fill out funds. The opportunities are there in the U.S. uh, innovation scene, uh, but the LPs are not. And so uh, funds are going abroad to find LPs. Um, So, in other news, um, and by the way, uh, for our audience, uh, we'd love to have you guys comment uh, on uh, on what I've covered so far. That's the macro environment, valuation levels, news of the week, um, and perhaps you even have some of your own news stories of the week that you'd like to raise for us to discuss. Um, so I thought it was also very interesting in other news that um, the the DTC telehealth pharmacy companies, um, row and calibrate um, have begun aggressively promoting uh the, the prescription of two weight loss drugs uh by telehealth so these are the big ones you guys have been hearing of for the last couple of weeks this is we and ozempic um which are i think they're injectable diet drugs that apparently have some of the best results we've seen in, in decades for diet drugs for for weight loss uh and uh, so I, th- I think it's interesting. You don't usually think of of um, telehealth pharmacies that are uh, direct consumer telehealth uh, companies as sort of aggressively promoting uh, the the uptake of, of new drugs, uh, but but Rowan Calibrate have both moved aggressively into this space. So uh, in, in a way that I also haven't seen their bricks and mortars competitors do. So this may be another way that um, digital health DTC pharmacies. Uh, Behave differently than than regular pharmacies, um, so not a lot of funding news. Again, we're in a lull of funding, and you know, two years ago we would have had a half dozen major funding announcements. Uh, but what I did see was Oshi Health, uh, a digital gastrointestinal health company, raised a thirty million dollar round. The CEO there is Sam Holliday. This was led by um, Coke, disruptive technologies, David Mooney there, um, uh, and prior investors like Flair, Bessemer, and CVS Health Ventures. So this is interesting. You know, I'm, I'm glad to see a, a deal like a 30 million dollar deal like this done. Um, and um, uh, and uh, I I have not heard of. Coach disruptive technologies being active in digital health before, so I welcome them being involved. Uh, and and then Flair Bessemer and CBS Health Ventures are just outstanding mainstream venture funds. Uh, so it's good to see this activity once again. You know, but we're not seeing the pattern of an outstanding lead investor, digital health lead investor leading. We're seeing Coach disruptive technologies, which I haven't heard of before, is the lead investor for this round. And so this is. CEOs kind of getting it done the best way they can in the current environment, as often lead, lead investors, classic lead investors, are not leading. And that's why the macro update is important, because if the Fed announces they've stopped raising rates, we could see mainstream venture funds that lead jumping back in and leading again. So so with that, I'll pause for a moment and just see if our audience has any um, uh, any news stories that they're following or think were significant in the last week. Um, so next I'll, I'll move on to upcoming conferences. So should you go to various upcoming conferences? And for our audience, you can also ask me to review a conference if you type it in the chat, um, or uh, you know just uh, uh, name a conference that you think is important coming up in the next couple of months. So, um, So HIMS is coming up. HIMS is April 17th to to 21st in Chicago. Tickets are $1,600. They have a track to connect young company leaders with VCs. I think that's that's great. I think think you should go to HIMS unless you already went to Vive, in which case you don't need to go to HIMS. But I think uh, going to HIMS is great. I think sign up for the track to connect with VCs. Write all the VCs that you know who are interested in the health IT sector uh, and ask for meetings at HIMSS. They have a track for startups to present. If you're a startup digital health company, I would try to get on that track, get some stage time, talk about your company. Um, So HIMSS is a nonprofit that's focused on the hospital CIO. um, And uh, they've expanded beyond that to focus on the hospital CFO and other parts of the hospital and health innovation more generally. that's not a. That's it's it's in my view that expansion has not been very successful. They're still very focused on the hospital CIO, um, but it's great for that. It used to be the biggest conference in all of healthcare IT, um, uh, and once again, this is focusing on selling to the hospital and to a lesser extent to the medical practice, uh, selling IT solutions. Um, so, um, uh, so I. But I, I think it. it it, you, know, it, it, you can learn a lot by going, a good number of VCs will go if they focus on the hospital sector um, uh, and also uh, hospital buyers are there to a, to a certain extent. It's hard to get an actual meeting with a hospital CIO, but people from the CIO office are there and walking the trade show floor. All conferences have been damaged by, uh, by the pandemic and so it's not clear how strongly Him is coming back now that the pandemic's over. So, so it, it may not be as good as prior hymns is. So the next one is Bio. Bio is June 5th to 8th in Boston. Uh, tickets are $3,500. They have a startup stadium. So first of all, I think Bio is great. The thing about Bio is Bio is overwhelmingly about molecular biotechs, uh, and it's not really about software. Nevertheless, um, they have had uh, IT tracks, digital health tracks, digital therapeutics tracks in the past. So if you go there, you are part of the 5% of the conference that is there for software and not there for biotech molecules. Um, And so they have a startup stadium, so I would would participate in that. They have a business forum one-on-one for partnering meetings, I would go to that. Um, So if you're a tech company and you're selling into the biopharma IT budget, the clinical budget or the commercial budget, um, or maybe you're a digital diagnostic or therapeutic, um, it's still a good partner conference to go to, um, to meet with innovation executives from big pharma, to meet with VC investors who are active in this sector. Uh, so I, I like Bio. I recommend going to Bio if you fall into that category. The next one's really interesting. It's it's the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. This is June six to seven in Boston. So it overlaps with Bio. It's also in Boston. Which this is this is a um, an an independent investor conference so independent investor conferences are kind of rare this one's all about the investor it's sponsored by flair and humana are the sponsors of it Um, and a number of things happen here so i think you'll see extremely good representation of vcs from boston venture funds and from new york venture funds also nationally but mainly boston connecticut new york new jersey philadelphia those venture funds uh, are going to be attending um, the digital healthcare innovation summit and they're there for they're there to meet and so they'll be interested in meeting with you i recommend going to this i think this is outstanding those uh venture investors they also have their favorite portfolio companies that's why they're sponsoring conferences like this to have their favorite portfolio companies featured and get their message out and then get investors who are later in the food chain like private equity or public investors interested in their favorite portfolio companies. So, but this is an, this, and interestingly, this investor conference, the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit in Boston in June, um, this takes place about six months after, um, after J.P. Morgan. you know, a little longer than after um, uh, uh, the health conference in Las Vegas in November, um, but it's at that halfway year mark. Um, and so if you attended uh, Health in November in Vegas and uh, and JP Morgan in January in San Francisco, um, then this is a good half half year mark conference to go to, to, to check in with investors. Um, next is the Health 2.0 conference in Las Vegas in July, July 10th to 12th, $2,000 tickets. Um, this is a, a really unusual situation with Health 2.0. So I was, um, a founder of the boston chapter of health 2.0 like 15 years ago matt holt founded health 2.0, the conference and the consulting firm uh, and uh, this is apparently a uh, a company with no affiliation with health 2.0 picked up the brand which was in disuse and has started a a conference uh And So I have looked into this conference. I know it's really hard to organically build a conference and get stakeholders to all come. And so I I doubt, I I haven't been to this reborn Health 2.0 conference. The old Health 2.0 conference was a product conference for the smallest digital health companies, for really small companies that needed to get word out, have people look at their demo, get some stage time, possibly meet with uh, bigger partners and with VCs. That was the old Health 2.0 conference. Um, It's hard to pull those together, uh, and I haven't been to the new one that's being reborn, but I'm I'm not planning on going. I I, I don't recommend it at this time. Um, So with that, does our audience have any questions about conferences uh, that you're thinking of attending, or maybe maybe you want to extol a conference and tell us um, about a conference that you think is outstanding to go to? So... All right, so then um, uh, moving on, I'm just gonna, I'm adding a new section for this week of discussion, and this is favorite news sources, uh, trade journal news sources in digital health. So I'll just mention a few. Uh, My favorite news source that I recommend to everybody is Moby Health News, that's at MobyHealthNews.com. So these guys cover all sectors of digital health, selling tech into the hospital, selling tech to the employer health budget, selling tech into pharma, digital therapeutics, all those, they, they cover everything. That's great. Um, and they especially focus on things like product launches, new partnership deals, fundraisers, trade sales, innovations in technology. Um, and those are great things to, to keep getting updates on. They publish every day. Um, and I like all the reporters at Moby Health I News. Think, I think all the reporters are strong. So that's my favorite Moby Health news. Um, the next is His Talk, H I S T A L K. So His Talk, like Hims, is really focused on hospital information systems and selling tech into health systems. And the HIS in His Talk stands for hospital information system. So talk about hospital information systems. Um, and so I like His Talk, uh, and I like Tim. Uh, there's a guy who's First name is Tim, who is anonymous, otherwise pseudonymous and unknown who he is, um, and they cover a lot of the um, inside stories, uh, a lot of the a lot of the news about uh, selling into the hospital sector, and they have a long-term reputation for kind of truth-telling and making the truth interesting, whereas a lot of the trade journals, the traditional trade journals that cover tech selling into hospitals, um, you know, seem to be. To be advertiser or sponsor driven, um, but his talk had a reputation for for truth telling, including telling bad news and critical news well. So, next, uh, Axios. Uh, Axios has made has is covering digital health more, and I like that. And I like the reporter Aaron Broadwin there, uh, who focuses on digital health companies and venture capital, which is the exact focus of this podcast as well. Um, Next uh, I like uh, exits and outcomes. So this is a, an unusual, interesting, and great newsletter published by Brian Dolan. Brian Dolan was, I think, a founding journalist at Mobi Health News, and now he's doing his own thing. Um, and um, so, I, so and this is a newsletter where 20% of it is free and 80% of it is behind a paywall. It's about $200 a year, and a lot of people I know subscribe to that and pay that. So I like that. Brian cuts through a, a lot of the sort of the, the fluff and the PR and gets to the business points. Um, I like he does original research and he often comes up with important data points that, that, are, that were missing in the marketplace. Uh, and I also like that he regularly finds secret health tech funding deals and publishes them. And he seems to be the only person who, who does this, who finds you know, low PR or secret health tech funding deals. So that, that's great. So thank you, Brian, for doing that. Um, so with that, from our audience, any thoughts about uh, trade journals uh, or news sources that you read that you, that you recommend? Um, and so uh, next, personal notices. So I'm hosting a drinks night tomorrow night, that's Thursday night in Boston, at the Liberty Hotel at MGHT Stop, Love to have you stop by. You do need to register in advance and you can find the event at stephenmordell.eventbrite.com for Thursday, April 13th. Um, great, so now I'm now moving on to today's topic. Today's topic is about the budgets of healthcare, uh, the, the, the healthcare budgets of digital health and their strength and what the buyers are spending their money on, their, the changing buyer preferences. So, um, The first topic I'll cover here is just, what are those big budgets of digital health? So I'll go over them first. There's six. Um, So the first is called healthcare IT. It's also called health tech. And this is software and technology companies that sell into the health system and medical practice budgets. And this is like selling electronic medical records or revenue cycle management or clinical decision support tools into a hospital. So that, that, that's healthcare IT or health tech. The next is digital health benefits. This is technology and software companies that sell into the employer health benefit budget. This is like, um, you know, let's say, uh, American Well selling telehealth services uh, to uh, an employer, um, or a care management solution like uh, the Levongo Diabetes Solution being sold into an employer. Um, or employer wellness and navigation solutions. Um, the next is the next budget is pharmatech. This is technology and software companies that sell into the budgets of big life science companies. This is like Viva and Komodo selling into the pharma commercial budget and MediData selling into the pharma clinical budget. The next is payer tech. So this is technology and software companies that sell into the payer IT budgets. This includes the payer IT programmatic budget for programs like telehealth, and also claims management and general IT uh, for the company. Um, The next budget category, number five, is consumer digital health. So this is technology and software companies that sell into the consumer budget, and that money comes dollar for dollar out of the consumer's pocket. This is like, a uh, consumer spending on, on a fitness tracker device um, or on a consumer diabetes management kit or something like that. Um, and the last group, number six, is what I call the FDA risk categories. So these are products that, that can be cleared through the FDA, prescribed by prescribers, reimbursed by, pharmacy, by payers, dispensed by pharmacies, um, used by patients under the care of a, of a, of a, a clinician um, uh, or equivalent uh, to, uh, to having some aspects of that. Um, so, this is digital diagnostics, therapeutics, monitoring uh, equipment, and other solutions that ha- that have FDA risk that they have to be cleared by the FDA before they uh, can be used by clinicians, and are often have uh, have reimbursement for them as well. So, now we'll dive into those categories and talk about their strength. So, the first budget is healthcare IT or health tech that we just talked about. And so the news here is this year, like last year, this budget is very weak. This is a troubled budget. This is a software buyer who is in pain uh, and who, uh, you know, a lot of their spend is committed to EMRs, for example. and. Uh, the larger, this is the hospital CIO spending, but also the CFO spending, also certain departments like radiology spending, et cetera. Uh, and, uh, uh, and they, uh, they uh, and hospital revenues are down. Um, hospital trade journals are putting out dire predictions that some hospitals will go bankrupt or will need bailouts uh, of various kinds. Uh, and then when you look at this, the spend in this sector, uh, hospital CIO spend and departmental spend, very often it's largely committed. So they've signed multi-year contracts with organizations, often it's with Cerner or Epic for their EMR and for their revenue cycle management. Um, and they only have, and but those are fixed, and they can't and don't want to back out of those. So the the delta of budget is small and under a lot of pressure. Um, so that's. But that's the first budget, and this is, this is true this year. It's also true last year uh, and, and the year before. Um, and so uh, now, having said that, there are still priorities of what, um, if, if you can bring revenue to the table or if you can address you know, some painful cost issues, um, then you can still get attention from hospital software buyers and you can still sell products to them. So one category we're seeing here that's interesting is clinician burnout. This has become a red hot issue, clinician burnout. It costs hospitals a lot to recruit and bring on nurses and physicians and others. Uh, And then they're often seeing that those workers turn around and leave after a little while. And so uh, a, a hospital could spend tens of thousands of dollars bringing a nurse on board and have the nurse leave less than a year later. Uh, And so this is causing hospitals to desperately turn to staff, to innovative staffing organizations, but they also want to figure out how in their enterprise to reduce clinician burnout in the first place. So that, that, that's a big issue. And I've seen some innovative solutions for clinician burnout, and you can definitely get, you know, uh, the attention of a a hospital CIO with a story about clinician burnout. Um, The other areas, you know, there's, I've heard various quotes that from seventy to ninety percent of uh, healthcare system spending is still done through fee for service, the old way of paying for care. Um, the new ways is Obamacare's fee for value, um, which, in you know, in in over a decade, we seem to have moved not very much in the direction of Obamacare's fee for value. So, optimizing fee for service, helping those hospitals um, to. Uh, to bill better uh, for a Um, fee-for-service. Those solutions are getting a lot of attention. Um, There's also documentation solutions that allow for uh, the best kind of care and billing under both fee-for-service and fee-for-value. Those are getting attention that both document better and also reduce the the human burden on physicians especially of documentation, but also on others. also, revenue cycle management. So um, the way I like to describe revenue cycle management is is that on the clinical side with EMRs and other solutions, oftentimes they're, they're, those uh, uh, hospitals struggle to find whether they can make a real financial return on the clinical side. They want to offer the best care. Um, they want to meet regulatory requirements. Um, they want to... Um, uh, to you know make a 21st century work environment etc cetera, etc cetera, but they have trouble uh, uh, finding true um, ROI on the clinical side on the financial side um, uh, for hospitals uh, there seem to be many opportunities for them to improve revenue cycle management collections from customers etc uh, and these solutions often have a very clear and strong ROI over the last 20 years hospitals have have spent a lot on the clinical side and have often underinvested on the revenue cycle management side, the CFO side. Um, and so it's sort of like doing deferred maintenance on your roof. Uh, uh, hospitals are, are spending up on the revenue cycle management side, which has a, a clear near-term uh, ROI, including a, a revenue boost to the ROI, which is what they may be looking for most of all. So that's another, another area. A fading category is telehealth enablement. Telehealth enablement was very hot uh, you know, in 2020, 2021, 2022. But now in 2023, you're seeing that burst of spending that was enabling the hospital to uh, provide decentralized care outside the four walls of the enterprise. Um, you're seeing uh, uh, hospitals pull back on spending. And you're also seeing patients go back into hospitals. So. Uh, the good news is, is that the, the technology infrastructure was laid down, the behaviors were changed, that's often one of the hardest things to do, patient behavior was changed, clinician behavior was changed, uh, to enable more telehealth, that's a good thing, but the boost in spending that happened because of the COVID emergency is fading now. So, and lastly, cybersecurity. So hospitals, you know, a, a, a 10 billion a year revenue hospital spends much less on IT security than a 10 billion revenue a year Fortune 500 company. Um, and so hospitals have a long way to go and, and are spending more on cybersecurity. And this gets the attention of the board because you can ruin a hospital through a cyber breach. Um, and uh, But this money tends not to go to digital health companies. It tends to go to industry standard cybersecurity companies. So that, that, that's a little bit of an overview of, of the health IT category. But definitely, this is the most suffering budget and therefore one of the hardest to sell technology to unless you can do something amazing like promise them revenue, uh, which which oftentimes revenue cycle management companies can do, um, or fee-for-service optimization companies can do. So now moving on to the next sector. The next sector is digital health benefits. So this is technology and software companies that sell into the employer health benefits budget. Um, and so here, this budget is strong. Um, this so at a at a fundamental level, um, benefit leaders at employers at progressive large employers who work in HR, they see these benefits as as important parts of what they do, and they think the benefits are working. So the number one thing that they're trying to do with these benefits is they're trying to bend medical trend down a little bit. Um, the benefit. Leader, the head of HR and the CFO all look really bad to the CFO when employee health care spending is excessively high. So they don't control employee health care spending and it bumps up all the time as, and it hurts earnings all the time. And then these professionals look bad um, uh, because it's something they don't control thats that they're nevertheless responsible for. So they're looking for tools to help them with this. And these digital health benefits tools are, are what they turn to. So uh, the first thing that they see is that they believe that with a number of these tools, they can bend medical trend down a little bit. They can steer employees towards using cool digital tools uh, to manage their health, uh, and that this will lead to fewer bills showing up uh, from, uh, from business to, 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 the, to the plain old healthcare system. Fewer emergency room visits, fewer visits with a doctor because their employees are healthy, because they were doing better self-care, because they were using these tools like a care management tool for diabetes or hypertension or back pain. Um, That's the first part. Also, uh, these progressive large employers, um, they really do value their employees and they want to make a unique special value proposition to those employees. And so they give them this bundle of benefits they can't get anywhere else and they use that to attract and retain talented people. So they use that to make it easy for a very talented software developer or a very talented female executive or or whoever, whomever to use their benefits and, and that's uh, that uh, improves employee morale, it attracts talent, it retains talent, it makes it hard for them to walk out the door if they find value in one of these benefits that they're not gonna get from another employer and they may have trouble getting directly and, on the street um, and these benefits have a high perceived value by employees so something that might cost a few dollars a month to an employer might be perceived as being very high value by an employee um, so uh, they, they think that digital health benefits are working for their goals um, and, um, uh, and they plan on continuing to buy them and to buy more of them um, so it, intriguingly uh, the same employer benefit leaders—they like digital in preference to bricks and mortar. And so, to, to give you an example here, um, employers used to have gym benefits. So they would contract with a the gym that had a few sites near the employer's um, uh, offices, uh, and they would give this benefit, and they'd they'd uh, and they'd offer you know a discounted membership or a reimbursed uh, payments to employees who who uh, purchase gym memberships. Um, but that, that is less applicable in a day and age when employees may work from home and may relocate to other places, and we've seen a lot of that during COVID. Uh, and so as a result, employers are preferring um, solutions, digital solutions that are nationwide immediately. So employers might embrace a Fitbit wellness program and not a gym membership because the gym, mem- the gym is only at a couple of sites near the employer's headquarters, whereas the Fitbits can be wherever their employees are. So digital is gaining over bricks and mortar. Um, uh, and uh, I think I think the hot product areas are gonna be the big care management areas along with some new ones possibly. Those big care management areas are diabetes, hypertension, cancer symptom management, musculoskeletal management, fertility and femtech, uh, and, and a few more in there. Um, so this is a great budget, it remains strong. Uh, and uh, uh, it's it's become a really crowded channel it's harder than ever if you don't already sell to these buyers it's harder than ever to start selling to them you might have to hire expensive salespeople who already have relationships um, uh, and uh, uh, and the buyers uh, like the benefit leaders are overwhelmed by prospecting from digital health companies and so they're often trying to find an intermediary who will help them decide so an industry association that rates digital health company vendors, um, or a uh, a benefit broker uh, who can help them interpret and make decisions, uh, or others. Um, so, and I expect that when, when the IPO window opens, I expect we'll see some. We'll see this will be the area we'll see the first IPOs from, and I expect to see some consolidation in this channel. There have been hundreds of companies started in this channel. Um, and I think we're, we're seeing winners and losers, and some of the winners are going to buy some of the losers uh, in this channel. So, um, uh, and then if we if we see a recession, which um, Fidelity is saying we're at the end of an expansionary period and about to enter a contractionary period, and Jason Calacanis is calling it a recession today, um, then I think you're going to see employer budget priorities are going to get scrambled in a recession. And so employees tend to lose leverage with employers during a recession, and so you could see uh, employers, uh, you know, make certain things mandatory and withdraw other nice things from employees because they now have more leverage during a recession. Employees are less likely to leave and go somewhere else. Um, so, uh, so that's um, so. With that, let me reach out to my audience. We talked about um, healthcare IT and health tech. We talked about. Um, digital health benefits, uh, you know, are there any um, any questions you guys have on these first two? Any product categories? We're, we're going to play a game, hot or not. So any product categories you think are hot with buyers now, or you're asking if they're hot with buyers now or not with buyers now? Um, so uh, and I have one question here, which is... Um, Where do remote patient monitoring solutions that increase revenue of provider organizations from Medicare and reduce costs by reducing hospital readmissions fall? Um, So uh, uh, many of these remote patient monitoring solutions, um, they are sold to to provider organizations. So they would fall uh, under the, the first category, healthcare IT and health tech. So you've got your solution. It includes uh, the, a patient goes home with a blood pressure cuff, let's say, uh, and then a, a clinician you know, checks once a month or more the data coming from that blood pressure cuff, bills a code. This is this is the remote monitoring, bills a code for $50 for having done that. Um, and they the, the doctor collects that money, but the doctor's also paying cash out the door for your solution. So you're selling to... Um, a health system or a medical practice in those cases, so it falls into that, um, into that bucket. Um, so I have someone else asking, how saturated is behavioral health care management? Um, so that, that, that's a good question, and I, I'd say in the world of the second category, which is digital health benefits, this is employers, I mentioned they care about care management, uh, you know, for diabetes, hypertension, cancer, I definitely would throw behavioral health in there as well. So that's one of the big five for employers, which means it's a great place to be. Um, and you've seen, um, you know, the uh, players like um, Teladoc have acquired behavioral health, you know, uh, solutions to to sell to the progressive large employer budget there. Um, and so I, I would say that that is, um, that, that's, a, a big category and it's not um, saturated yet. Uh, so I'd say I'd say telehealth selling to the employer is pretty saturated. Selling diabetes to the employer is is pretty saturated. Uh, those were the first two, um, and then when it comes to hypertension, you know, um, you know, uh, and, and some of the other ones, uh, less so. Uh, now when it comes to Fertility and femtech, there's been, there, there are so many fertility and femtech solutions that that, that particular subcategory may be relatively um, uh, saturated selling into the employer market. So um, let's see, so now I'll, I'll move on. So we covered the first two, now I'll cover the third uh, budget area, which is pharmatech. tech. So uh, that is technology and software companies that sell into the budgets of life sciences companies. Um, this is like, um, you know, FIVA selling CRM into the pharma commercial budget or Komodo, Komodo selling uh, um, f- uh, pharmacy sales data into the pharma commercial budget or MediData, the clinical trials automation company selling software to pharma clinical budget um, to help with clinical trials automation and decentralization, etc. So here the budget's really strong here. This is a great budget. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, the um, pharma companies are feeling very rich right now, compared to the Fortune 500, compared to recent 20-year history. Pharma companies, you know, their business model is working. Um, you know, their their hit drugs are are cash cows. Uh, they have a, a lot of cash, and they're very happy. You know, in the last 10 years or so, they've been very happy to spend that cash on software and automation. Um, and this is part of a long-term pharma trend, which is called pharma outsourcing. So pharma used to want to build everything internally. They used to have, if you if you wanted your data analyzed, you'd have pharma um, W2 employees doing the data analysis. If you wanted to set up an Oracle uh, server and store data on it, uh, you know, that was going to be, you'd, you'd license the, the database from Oracle, and then you'd have, you know, Merck's own w2 employees would be setting up an instance in a Merck data center or whatever um, and today they're outsourcing all of that and that's, that's great news for small technology companies who make software and technology products because that's a, a much bigger market for them to sell fully formed world-class products into so this budget is very strong it's, it's stronger now than it was three years ago or than it was six years ago this is a great budget as i said um, interestingly, this is not an overcrowded budget. So the, the employer health benefits budget that we talked about, and we talked about being very crowded, we talked about the hospital IT budget being terrible and hospitals you know, crying in their beer and being in pain and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so the PharmaTech budget, this is a very strong budget um, that is not overcrowded. Uh, so I think we're gonna see entry of young companies into this trying to serve this budget. Um, so some of the hot areas in this budget, um, there continues to be clinical trial automation, um, uh, also um, the sourcing of uh, of candidate subjects for clinical trials, clinical trial decentralization, and other kinds of optimization of clinical trials. So I think that there's a you know there's a there have been studies that have said that you know it's along the lines of um, if, you, if a drug company is working on a blockbuster drug that will have a limited patent life, then every day of delay of, of unnecessary time of that drug in clinical trials is costing that, that pharma company, something like over $20 million a day. Um, uh, and so, um, uh, and so you can see that that pharma companies that have big piles of cash and are feeling spendy, and believe in technology and want to outsource to tech vendors, um, why they would want to spend money uh, to speed things up to have better solutions. So, very often clinical trials are delayed because you can't find um, you can't find patients, you can't find subjects for them. You know, just as an example, um, and then the old tech stack for clinical trials was horrible. It was terrible. It, it totally needed the cloud and it needed new modern kinds of decentralization. So, uh, so then um, that's the clinical side of the pharma budget. And then over on the commercial side of the pharma budget, there's this really interesting um, angle of, uh, uh, so there is um, somehow getting pharma into the electronic medical record. Now I know this sounds really weird, uh, but, uh, pharma is used to being able to get to doctors, uh, and so pharma hires well-paid sales reps who do calls, who arrive at doctor's offices and give them free samples and leave behind little tchotchke gifts. And in the past, they might have bought pizza for the whole office, uh, and they're used to getting in there, and, and, and they'll have a story uh, uh of, of news about a, a non-patent drug why it's better they'll have supporting published peer-reviewed journal papers to hand out supporting their claims etc uh, and so this um, there's been growing amounts of pressure to shut this kind of uh, access down uh, in a lot of ways and so pharma is now desperately trying to get into the emr because then they can in an automated way, pop up in front of the doctor when the doctor's making prescribing decisions to affect those decisions. And so this is happening to a certain extent, but so sales reps are having trouble reaching doctors for a number of reasons, because doctors are becoming employed by hospitals. And one of the first things hospitals do is they tell those doctors you are no longer going to see any more pharma sales reps so now those doctors can't see pharma sales reps and pharma can't communicate with those doctors Um, There's also sunshine laws passed by states where doctors have to disclose in in detail any kind of minor payment they get from the pharma industry and this is both burdensome and also in some cases embarrassing Uh, and so doctors have responded to this by they do disclose um, but they also just stopped taking the payments uh, and and the gifts from the pharma industry, um, and so uh, then um, so there's a, num- a number of reasons why um, doctors are getting pharma's getting shut out of uh, and then you know during COVID uh, doctors weren't seeing pharma reps because there was the chance of um, catching COVID from a you know two ways in that case and so pharma's trying to figure out you know where um, the, the drug rep fits into the future, and there's more extremely expensive drugs than ever. There's more specialty drugs that cost them for 200000 dollars a year than ever. Uh, and so, in those cases, I think you're still going to see pharma sales reps doing everything they can to meet every every prescribing physician they can, uh, and um, and there's often they often have real messages of value and education. To pass on, along with trying to influence the doctor to change their prescribing behavior as well, um, but but pharma is also trying to do an end run around the system by getting into the EMR, um, and so this is uh, like clinical decision support at the time of prescribing. A a pharma company may, you know, be able to offer um, a different formulation of a drug or a discount on the drug if they know the patient's payer uh, or a, um, a companion to the drug for free, uh, et cetera, and they would pop up in the middle of the physician's prescribing with this offer um, to try to get the persuade the physician to prescribe, you know, for their drug for this patient. Uh, and so that, that's another area where pharma is try- pharma wants to pay for this, and hospitals want subsidized IT. And so it's like chocolate and peanut butter; it's two great tastes that taste great together. Um, so that's um, more about pharma, and then um, there's also AI, on the clinical side again, there's there's AI in new drug discovery. So there's long been a dream to use sort of billions and billions of combinations of of drug molecules and human molecules to figure out what kind of molecules would be good drug candidates. And our ability to understand this and model this has taken some big leaps recently, and so you know, whereas in general, so that there's kind of two ways to, to discover new drugs. One is to have extremely smart, experienced people of whom there aren't that many in the world work out drug candidates and then spend money proving the qualities of them. And that's how almost all drugs have been developed. And that's time consuming and expensive and there aren't that many great geniuses at doing this. The other way is to just uh, model uh, millions and millions of drug candidates in computers and try to pick which ones would be the best based on the characteristics they show in computers and then spend extra money in in, in vitro trying to figure out if they have the qualities that you need. So uh, uh, pharma companies have long wished that they weren't reliant on the sort of expensive genius approach and they've wanted to use computers to do this work on a mass scale and that's been tried and it's, it's never been highly successful in the past. It's had a few minor successes, it's never it's never become the way that we develop drugs in the future, discover new drug candidates in the future. Now there have been some breakthroughs with in computer modeling about how we know that proteins fold and modeling interactions between drugs and the human body better than ever. And so there's an, a new hope that AI, modern new AI, will help us with drug discovery better than than this sort of technique, this pathway has done in the past. So with that, that that's my overview of PharmaTech. Any uh, questions from the audience? Um, so uh, what what technology companies, if any, are succeeding in getting pharma into the EMR? So this is a good question. Um, let's see. Um, so there are a couple of, of free EMR companies out there. Um, And so these are, so typically with an EMR, the provider organization pays for the EMR. Uh, A way to think of EMRs is they're a bit like CRM systems. CRM is Client Relationship Management Systems. Most American companies have a CRM system. It has, for example, the names of all their customers in it. Salesforce.com is a, is a CRM system, so most companies in America are paying someone like Salesforce.com money, maybe on a SaaS monthly basis, for example, to host the system which has their data in it. It's, it's a very valuable system; they're paying a lot for that. This is what an EMR is for a hospital. Their customers are, are patients; they have their patients' information. Uh, it's both sales and and client relationship management as well, uh, and and you know customer. Um, uh, uh, uh you know management uh, both in this EMR so that that's what it is and there were some free to the provider organization systems out there in EMRs um, and so they they said to doctors uh, we we don't charge anything for our EMR system you're required by the government to have an EMR system we don't charge anything for our use ours um, and that signed up a lot of doctors, uh, and they sometimes they had hospital versions, and hospitals would sign up for this. Um, and it was f- it was free, except that the doctors were shown ads, um, and the patients were shown ads. There were patient portals, patients saw ads. There were physician portals, physicians saw ads. Um, and that so they were ad supported. So that, that that's one way that um, pharma companies are su- succeeding to get into the EMR. Um, And uh, and there are other companies out there that are are, um, figuring out how to offer, you know, once again, it could be free and freemium versions of clinical decision support software around e-prescribing. That would be an obvious area of an EMR to go into um, where uh, it's it's paid for by pharma. You could also, uh, payers might also like to get messages in front of doctors when doctors make prescribing decisions as well. So you could have pharma and payers both uh, supporting and paying for e-prescribing tools uh, that integrate into the EMR for when physicians make that choice. So that that's a but so good question. Um, so now I'll go move on to the fourth category, which is payer tech. So this is technology and software companies that sell into the payer IT budget. And so payers have the the plan manager has a programmatic budget for programs like offering telehealth uh to their to employees and then also the enterprise has claims management it that they have a big it system around claims management um so here the payer tech budget um this budget is neither you know strong nor weak today it's it's about the same as what it has been uh, and so uh uh, and so here, um, some bright spots within the budget is that payers are increasingly aware of of the need for higher HEDIS star ratings of their plans. And so any software that helps them boost an aspect of uh, their HEDIS star ratings, such as you know getting members to take advantage of preventative care, uh, or such as um, Closing gaps in care, for example, Um, they they can you can boost their HEDIS star ratings, and that gets them better reimbursement um, uh, uh, for their plans. So, uh, software solutions for boosting HEDIS star ratings, Um, and then there's a fading category here, which was that um, health plans actually became really rich during COVID, and that was because their premiums they collected stayed the same. uh, and uh, but uh, there was a lot of missed care, a lot of uh, under-utilization of care. And so health plans amassed a lot of cash on their balance sheet during COVID. And there was a hope at the time that health plans would be visionary and that they would use that money to reinvent themselves. And they would spend a lot of that money on tech companies and tech products as a result. And they might become sort of Next generation pay providers, uh, payer providers, um, or they might rework their IT systems for fee for value instead of fee for service. Uh, as an example, um, and this is a fading budget hope because we, we haven't really seen this. We haven't really seen health plans change. We haven't seen them be visionary. We haven't seen them use that cash pile for good. Um, so that's a, you know, th- that's a fading category. I would say. Um, so. Uh, with that, let me just turn to my audience again. Any questions about the last couple um, budgets in, in digital health? And any questions about um, what, what product categories are hot with buyers? Or maybe you're going to suggest that you've heard of some that are hot with buyers, and I can, I can review that. Um, so next, we'll move on. And the fifth category here is consumer digital health. So this is technology and software companies that sell in the consumer budget. And this money comes dollar for dollar out of the consumer's pocket. It's usually not not reimbursed. Um, And this is like a consumer buying a a personal fitness tracker or a a consumer digital diabetes management kit or something like that. Um, And so here, this budget, um, this is a hard budget to describe, um, but this budget is basically moving sideways, and this is neither, neither especially strong in the future or especially weak in the future. Um, but I, I think what's interesting is that there have been some breakthroughs in persuading people to spend on their health. Uh, and the examples everyone is fascinated by is there's Noom, which came along and ate the lunch of uh, uh, of Weight Watchers in the weight loss category and is now expanding into other areas. But Noom has done a really great job uh, in you know, creating an, an effective product for consumer health and then persuading consumers to spend $40 a month or, or whatever on this product. And it's often in categories where it's an app in the Apple App Store, in, in your app store. Uh, it's often in categories where there were pre-existing apps. There were many pre-existing apps and a lot of them were free. And yet Noom came along and figured out how to provide more value and also charge for it. Also, also examples like like Whoop, the activity tracker that's um, making waves, and Peloton, which is has sort of persuaded people has figured out how to get adherence from people and get people to highly engaged in in fitness in their own home. So, uh, those are some uh, some interesting categories people are watching. And I'll just note that if we if we go into a recession and we have people saying that we are going into a recession. Then this budget will, will definitely become weaker um, during a, during recessions. Uh, you know, healthcare is known as being less cyclical with recessions than other sectors, but that's not always true of what the enterprises spend on IT. Um, and likewise, with the consumer budget, when we go into a recession, that means consumers are losing their jobs, feeling insecure, feeling poorer, and consumer demand is going down. Uh, especially for um, discretionary spending. And a lot of this stuff is, is discretionary spending. So we can expect this to be hit badly if we go into a recession. So uh, with that, any any thoughts from my audience about, uh, you know, uh, consumer digital health subcategories, what's hot, what's not for 2023 and beyond? Um, and so, lastly, I'll cover the sixth category. This is this is the FDA risk category. So, this is products like prescription digital therapeutics, like uh, Pair and Click and and Better and Achilles and uh, WellDoc and others. Products for for diabetes or for ADHD. Um, digital diagnostics like I, like I Tech um, for heart rhythm for for cardio rhythm management. Um, uh, and uh, uh, so here, this is an interesting area because it's it's not really a matter of budgets being strong or not. It's more a matter of unusual, innovative solutions having trouble tapping budgets. Um, so, uh, uh, and they, they have to get, uh, they, these are often solutions that don't look like previous solutions. So a classic example is that, there's great regulatory treatment for any molecular drug for an unmet medical need gets great regulatory and reimbursement treatment. Um, but a software therapeutic does not get that regulatory treatment. Uh, and so um, and so it's not really a matter of you know, do reimbursers like the government and commercial payers have the money, are their budgets strong? That's not really the issue. The issue is, do highly innovative solutions that don't look like previous solutions, are they able to tap that, that budget? Um, and here, you know, uh, we're, there there are, we're, this is an evolving area where some people are being very successful at, at tapping this budget uh, and others are not being so successful tapping this budget. We're still learning. It's innovation running into problems of the system being slow, of the system being, being uh, wary and looking askance and, and fearing that, that they're going to see additional utilization without an additional payment, without seeing improved outcomes. Um, so here we have the, the paratherapeutics bankruptcy, which, which seems to cast doubt on the pathway of molecular therapeutics being able to charge an equivalency price to... Uh, it it, it casts doubt on software therapeutics being able to charge an equivalent price to prescription molecular therapeutics. Um, however, we're also seeing. you know, I, I had Grady Hanna of Nightwear on my show the other week, and he talked about um, selling digital therapeutics as medical equipment. Um, that uh, you know, you and and in doing so, you don't face the same obstacles as um, as uh, as being you know a prescription digital therapeutic. So there's the medical equipment pathway was one that we found. Um, and um, uh, so, um, so that's, you know, a, a potential bright spot here. So, and I'll I just say that, you know, innovation continues to be at a disadvantage um, in the FDA risk category. Unfortunately, I know that, Groups like the Digital Therapeutics Alliance are trying to change the environment um, because first they have to get past approval and clearance by the FDA, and that may be more work for them. With their, they have new form factors, they have new modalities, they have new ways that the product works, um, and it's as hard or harder to get those past the FDA. Although the FDA has been pretty progressive. Um, and then once they do that, they have to figure out how to get reimbursed. And often the system is not reimbursing them well. And so a classic example is that they replace they replace and automate some of the skill of a provider, um, but there's no way to pay them for it. You, you still have to pay the provider for skilled labor. And so the provider may not want to adopt a product that replaces their skill. Uh, and so here you have a case where you're you're um, replacing the skill and you're, you're automating the labor and the skill of a skilled provider. And there's no way to, to pay the technology company for having done that. Instead, they're in the hands of the very provider who they, who may see them as challenging them. And the technology can't be paid for in that situation. Only the provider can be paid for. So instead, you go to the provider saying, use us and you can do more work um, and by, you can see more patients by using our technology. But you're not really getting paid for the value that you bring, so that's my overview of the FTA risk category. Um, so, with that, uh, let's see. Um, just uh, I'll turn to our audience for any final questions about you know the the topics we covered. We t- we covered the macro environment and news and the six the strength going into two thousand and twenty-three of the six budgets of digital health. So. Any other questions? Um, Well, that's great. So you've been listening to Digital Health Investor Talk with host Stephen Wardell. Um, uh, uh, And uh, so you can find a list of our upcoming shows at stephenwardell.eventbrite.com. You can also follow me on Twitter where my handle is at Stephen Wardell. Um, To get a notice of upcoming investor talks, you can sign up for our MailChimp list. Um, And I'll see you next time for our show called Selling to Employers, How the Benefit Leaders' Priorities are Changing and What it Takes to Win, with Mike Payne, who's the president of MP Healthcare Consulting and a former global head of digital health at Roche and head of commercial at Virta Health, on Wednesday, May 3rd at 4 p.m. And for our Massachusetts audience, our next monthly digital health investor talk, Drinks Night, is tomorrow, Thursday, April 13th, from 5.30 to 8.30 Uh, in the lobby bar in the Liberty Hotel. Um, uh, Thanks. This is Steve Wardell signing off. Bye-bye.